Well, um, I'm curious on this Mother's Day, what is the one lesson, maybe not one, but the top few lessons that you feel like you learned from your mom? And maybe that can be your conversation over lunch, right? Or maybe you're learning from your mom if you're younger, but what, are the, what were the points of emphasis or what are the points of emphasis in your house? You're like, my mom's not gonna let us forget this one. Uh, I wonder how you would answer that question. Could be a good conversation for you today at lunch. I, I know for me, when I think back on my mom, who's here with me today, um, there are many wonderful lessons that uh, I got a chance to learn from her, but definitely within the top sphere and one of that top tier of lessons was the importance of being truthful. Uh, it was a major, major emphasis in our home. You do not lie. Period. I remember her telling me in high school, now, Jeremiah, it may be tomorrow, it may be a week from now, it may be two weeks from now, it may be two months from now, but I'm always going to find out, right? So you just go ahead and tell me the truth. And I was like, yes, ma'am. You know, so like lying was not tolerated in our home. And so consequently, as we've been working through this series on truth and understanding that which is true, I can't help but think of some of those life lessons and, and the importance of it and how the importance of truth was really instilled in me in a very early age. And that's really where this conversation started. I know we've got some guests and visitors with us today. And so uh, just as a quick overview on this series, we, we've referred to this series, What is True? And when we first introduced uh, this conversation, we really identified and highlighted the importance of that question in today's culture. That now more than ever, people are asking that question and then it's harder and more complicated to figure out what is really true. I was reminded of this even again, just this past week. Uh, I sign up for a variety of different like news subscriptions that come in and give me the highlights, <clears throat> excuse me, of current events. And I came across one article that talked about uh, the White House meeting. Maybe some of y'all saw this with uh, the administration. I think it was led by Vice President Kamala Harris and all the CEOs of the major tech industries that are leading the charge with artificial intelligence. And, and through the course of that meeting, there were all these different cautions and warnings that as we head into 2024, which is gonna be another major election year, not just in our country, but around the world, that all these tech people and these, these CEOs are saying, y'all prepare yourselves for an overwhelming explosion of false truths and incredibly hard to discern uh, all these different things because of artificial intelligence and all this different fake news, false truths is kind of an interesting statement, fake news because of, of all the different technology that's at our disposal today. And you have key figures out there uh, that are saying, I think it was Elon Musk that tweeted, trust nothing, not even nothing. And, and to me, it's just a great depiction of where we are as a society, right? Like the erosion of trust. Uh, in media, in businesses, in, in politicians, uh, in corporate, you name it. Uh, we are struggling to grasp with what is true. And so it's incredibly important. It's increasingly difficult in our context. And one of the things we talked about in week one is that we have to strive for this. And one of the reasons we see it as important is you can even draw from some of the life lessons of that childhood story, the little boy who cried wolf which it, the, the story teaches you not just the importance of truth in terms of your own personal integrity, right? That you can be believed and to be seen to be honest and trustworthy, but it's not just about your own integrity, but for the betterment of society. That because of the lie of the young boy, the wolf eventually made its way into the village and dispersed and killed several of the sheep, right? And so societies that don't have an understanding of what is true and can't rely upon one another upon a common truth, they make themselves vulnerable. And so we accentuated that as being an important aspect to this series. Uh, but in week one, all we really introduced was a couple of key tenets. One of them was how to pray. 
And we use Psalm 25 in that discussion that says, the psalmist says, uh, Lord, teach me your truth. You are my God, my Savior. My hope is in you all day long. That it has to be a matter of prayer. And I hope this is a way that you have started to pray. And we'll continue to pray each and every day. Lord, lead me into your truth. Recognizing the complexity of the environment within which we live. But in addition to that, probably one of the most foundational passages that we've gone back to throughout this series was John 18, where Jesus himself gives us the answer to the question, right? It's the Sunday school answer, but it, and it's obvious, it's easy, but it's one we got to cling to, right? Where Jesus says in John 18, the whole reason I was born, the reason I came was to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to my words. So there's your answer. It's the same Sunday school answer. What's true? Jesus, right? It's like the same answer everywhere you are. And we have built upon that every single time. Because then we moved into how do you discern truth? And, and the idea of discernment is when I'm bombarded with all this information in today's culture, how do I know what's true? And the, the, the key uh, quality and aspect to discerning truth is to listen to the Father's voice. Uh, we use that illustration of like a young child. I referenced my youngest son, Wu, who's very inquisitive and is constantly going, what's that? What's that? What's that? And I'm always like driving in the car, answering, well, this is that, and this is what this means, and all those different things, that that's how we need to discern. When we encounter different things in the world, when we see different things on the news or in, on, online or social media or whatever it is, we need to turn to those events, those moments, and turn to the Father and say, Lord, what is this? Help me understand it. We use 2 Peter chapter 1 as a guide to help, to help shape and cultivate that lens of discernment. Uh, you look at these qualities that we're supposed to add to our faith in 2 Peter chapter 1, and we, we kind of synthesize those and paraphrase them to say, here's the lens through which you discern truth. You need to always remember our call towards love, right? Anything that pulls you away to being loving is not going to be anchored in truth. Uh, our call towards transformation right? That, that we aren't perfect, other people aren't perfect, but God has given us a hope to be transformed, a call towards purpose, right? That, that our goal in life is not to win an argument, but to make disciples, and that that's our purpose. That's the truth that we need to be clinging to, and to also be people that are fearless, right? That a lot of what happens when we have a truth problem is people get fearful, and, and fear can breed deception, in Matthew 24, Jesus talks about that. Don't be deceived. Don't be alarmed by all these things that may take place. Don't let your love grow cold. We cannot be fearful. We need to be fearless. And the reason we can be fearless is that fifth lens that we talked about, which is that we live not for an earthly kingdom, but a heavenly one. Right? If we can discern all these events through that lens, it's going to help us redirect towards the gospel, which is where we kind of shifted gears last week. It wasn't just identifying the importance of truth and how to discern it, but now that I have it, what do I do with it? How do I share it? And, and so when we kind of made that pivot and that transition, we're going to dedicate three weeks to that question, how do I share truth? And we started that last week by talking about the words that we say, Today we're going to talk about the posture that we need to have, and then next week we'll talk about the environment within which we share that truth. And so when you think about the words, we talk about John 3.16, right? We were going to just try to use uh, an anchor to reference the gospel, to summarize the gospel for God, right? There is a God, there is a creator. That has massive implications on our understanding of that which is true. Who is this God? Well, he loves the world. That also has massive implications on what we believe to be true. How do we know that he loves us? Well, he gave his one and only son, the giving of Jesus through the incarnation, 
right? That the, that the divine could take on flesh and dwell among us. He gives us Jesus to the point of death on a cross and an ultimate sacrifice. He gives us hope through the resurrection of the dead. He gives us his one and only son that has massive implications on what we believe to be true. So that if we do believe it and we see this gospel to be true, we will not perish but have everlasting life. That was our anchor. Those are the words that we say. That is the anchor of our truth in which we begin to understand this world and engage it. But here's the point for today. It doesn't matter if you know the words. It doesn't matter if you can claim this gospel, know this truth. If you communicate it with the wrong posture, no one cares what you have to say. That's really what today's message is about. How do I earn the right to be heard? With what posture do I engage this world around me so that people actually want to hear this truth that we have found in Christ, right? And we have to figure that out because if we say it in the wrong way, with the wrong tone, in the wrong place, nobody's listening. And that's one of the problems with the church today, right? Is we, we may claim it, but we communicate it in the wrong posture. And so that's what we're gonna work through today is what is the posture with which we carry this truth? Now, here's the easy answer, right? And it's kind of the expected answer. The easy answer is we need to cultivate a posture of love, right? I mean, that, it, that is, that's kind of the given, and you would see that spelled out in scripture. I mean, it's a very clear biblical mandate. God is love. If we're made in his image, we should reveal that love, right? Jesus prays for his disciples. That the world would know them by their love. We sang about this this morning, right? You, you can think about the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. But here, here's the thing, right? Like that's so critical that you even see that correlated to the words that you say in 1 Corinthians 13. And this to me kind of diagnoses the problem. 1 Corinthians 13, Paul talks about love and he says, even if you speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but you do not have love. You're a resounding gong and a clanging cymbal. And I wonder how true that is for our lives, right? That we may speak all these eloquent words, this incredible truth of the gospel, but because we don't have love, all the world hears is a resounding gong and a clanging cymbal. That's what we want to guard against. See, what we're after is, is really kind of Ephesians 4.15. How do I speak the truth in love. How do I do that well? Now, here's, here's where it becomes complicated, and here's why we're actually not going to talk about love directly today. The reason we're not going to talk about love directly is because we kind of have a love problem. Um, we, and we've talked about this on a couple of occasions. We have a love problem in, in a couple of ways. One is we've saturated that term across our culture. We, we love everything, right? So like we love mom, we love Jesus, and we love coffee. And we love pickles and our Chick-fil-A sandwiches, right? Can I get an amen? Yeah, I, yes, yes. Uh, like we love everything. And, and when you love everything, it diminishes our ability to understand what does love really look like? So that is an issue, but probably the greater issue that kind of cautioned me, or I guess that I felt a certain trepidation and hesitation to focus just in on that word love today, is the way our culture started to use the word love where it's easy to now equate the word love to tolerance, right? Like just accept that what love really is, is just blind acceptance and a tolerance for whatever somebody wants to do. You gotta tolerate whatever they believe, whatever they, they think that that's loving. And to not do that is to be unloving, 
right? That if you don't accept me for who I am, or if you don't condone the things that I want to condone, then you are unloving, you're bigoted, you're hateful, you're whatever. And the reality is that is a very pervasive narrative in our culture today. But I'm here to tell you that is not actually true. That's, that's not really what love is. That's a fear tactic, right? Like what that is, is to threaten the ridicule and the label of you being unloving so that you will either become silent or you will agree with my position. That's all it is. Because it's very illogical to say that, right? It's very illogical to say that you've just got to accept everything that I want, and if you don't, then you're unloving, right? This is not how people parent, right? If my child, I've said this before, my child wakes up in the middle of the night and says, Dad, feed me with sugar. It is not loving for me to go, okay, well, you want it. I mean, I'm Got to tolerate it. Here you go. Right? My kids want to play in the street. They're like, it's more fun out here. I can do more out here. And there's cars zooming by. It's not loving for me to say, yeah, go for it, man. Good luck. Right? Love speaks the truth and says no. Right? But that's not what society wants us to believe. Right? You've got to accept me. And if you don't, then you're unloving. That's illogical. It's a fear tactic. Let's, let's be in a more real last, uh, realistic example. If I have a friend who's cheating on his wife, is it loving for me to just accept it? Condone it? Be like, well, I got to tolerate it. If my friend is addicted to drugs, is it loving for me to just condone it and, and celebrate it and advocate for it? No. Right? We all know that, that love oftentimes has to speak the truth that can be hard to hear. But that's what love does. You have to speak the truth in love. And so the reason I deviated from the terminology of love today was because of that narrative that's in our culture, right? That I didn't want us to associate every example of love to be like, well, I just got to accept and tolerate. How do I find truth that might be hard for someone to hear? How do I still communicate it in love? That's really what we're trying to answer today, okay? And, and that's speaking to the posture. Um, and so there are three uh, really kind of elements to the posture that I think we need to assume, and I guess by an indirect way, this is describing what love looks like. And uh, I don't have a cool little acronym like I did last week where we talked about sharing the gospel and having that leap of faith uh, when you do it, where you have to learn about someone else. You need to uh, explain uh, who you are, explain the gospel, ask them to respond to the gospel and pray for them, right? That idea of leap. I don't have that cool acronym this week, uh, but I do have three things I want to accentuate. And that would be uh, the posture of repentance, compassion, and servanthood. Okay, that's what we're going to look at today. So grab your Bibles, turn to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew is going to be our guide today. We're not going to be just in one passage. We're going to be flipping throughout it. So go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 4. And what we're going to talk about first is when we talk about posture, what we need to see is that this is a posture that starts internal before it moves external. And this is an incredibly important progression. Before you figure out the posture that you need to take with the world around you, you first have to ask yourself, what posture have I taken in my own heart? It has to start internal before it goes to external. And that internal step is a posture of repentance, right? The gospel begins with repentance. I'm going to show it to you right here, okay? In Matthew chapter 3, you can hang out in chapter 4, but just as context, in Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist comes and he starts preaching a message of what? Repentance. 
right? Repent. The kingdom of heaven is coming near. He begins to point to the fact that he is there to prepare the way of the Messiah. And he continues to preach that message. And we see that the fruit of that message is people are coming to confess their sins and be baptized. He, he calls out the Pharisees and he encourages them in chapter three, you need to produce a fruit of repentance. The message from John the Baptist is repentance. Then Jesus comes upon the scene and when Jesus arrives, he is baptized by John, affirming that message. And then he goes off into the wilderness for 40 days. And he's tempted by the evil one, tempted by Satan. And all of this is a preparation for his ministry. And then you get to chapter 4, verse 17. And Jesus begins to go and share these words, goes to preach this gospel. And how does he communicate? What does he say the gospel requires at the very beginning? Chapter 4, verse 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach Repent, the kingdom of heaven has come near. The first step in our response to the gospel, the posture that we have to take with ourselves is a posture of repentance. Here's what that word means. Repentance means to completely change one's attitude and thinking towards sin and righteousness. To change one's life to change one's way. You've probably heard it said before that repentance is like, I was going this way and then I did a 180 and now I'm going this direction. That's repentance, right? To completely change your thinking and your attitude towards sin and towards righteousness. Here's why this is so important. The posture we have to assume, assume when we engage the world around us is one of repentance because it takes our own sin seriously. It helps us see our own personal need for mercy, right? The, the example I often think of from the scriptures comes from Luke's gospel when he talks about the prayer of the tax collector. Y'all remember this story? Jesus is standing there with his disciples. He's watching these people pray and this Pharisee comes forward and he prays first and he says, thank God that I'm not like this tax collector. I give, I do all these wonderful things. And then the tax collector prays and the scriptures tell us that the tax collector beats his breast and says, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, it's that man that went home justified. And in that we get a great depiction of why a repentant posture is so important. When we don't take sin seriously, when we don't understand the need to confess in our own life, our own need for mercy, then we become like the Pharisee who looks down on others and says, thank God I'm not like them. That is not the posture with which we need to assume. And too often, it's exactly the posture the church has taken. Right? We have to take our sin seriously. It keeps us humbled. It keeps us in need and awareness of God's grace and mercy. But not only that, it helps us not just take sin seriously, but righteousness seriously as well. Right? The repentant heart is not just apologetic for their mistakes. The repentant heart pursues righteousness cares about holiness. You go back to 2 Peter chapter 1 that we talked about last two weeks ago, I guess, right? At this point. And all the things we're supposed to add to our faith. We add to our faith goodness. Goodness comes knowledge to knowledge, self-control. Self-control, perseverance. Perseverance, godliness. Godliness, mutual affection. Mutual affection and love. This is how love becomes expressed. You have to actually care about a pursuit of righteousness and holiness. It is not enough for us to continually just acknowledge our mistakes and failures and never do anything about it. You know what that does? That creates hypocrisy. Newsflash. 
One of the greatest challenges with the church is hypocrisy. I'm sure you guys have seen the studies um, and the figures. In fact, it just came out this past week uh, that the Southern Baptist denomination uh, lost almost half a million members this past year. It was the greatest single year drop in 100 years. And before we stop and go, well, gosh, what's going on with the Southern Baptists? Every denomination is in decline across the country. There was a study that was done by Lifeway back in 2017. I can only imagine that these numbers have, grown, have gone up, but it targeted young adults in particular and young adults that had grown up in the church. And they found back in 2017 that 66%, almost 7 out of 10 young adults that grew up in the church, this was a survey done for people ages 23 to 30, those that had grown up in the church uh, walked away from the church for more than a year. And one of the top reasons, now there's a variety of reasons, and I know that, but one of the top reasons that they were cited as the reason as to why they left was because the church members that they saw and that they grew up with were labeled as divisive, judgmental, and hypocritical. So what kind of fruit are we producing when young people are leaving in droves? Seven out of 10. Hypocrisy, right? So when we, when we have moral failure after moral failure and we turn a blind eye to sexual abuse and racism and all these different things, and that's what people see within our lives, that is a great indicator that the church has lost its posture of repentance. It does significant damage. Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 2 when he's calling out the Jews. He says, the Gentiles, God's name is blasphemed amongst the Gentiles because of you. And I can't help but think that that's part of what we're seeing in our society. A repentant heart takes sin and righteousness seriously within ourselves. And maybe that's the way that you can evaluate how this is working out in your life, right? Like, let's just ask, what would people say about your life in terms of what your life demonstrates about your beliefs, right? Forget what words you say. Forget the fact that somebody could come up and ask you, hey, are you a Christian? And you could say yes. Let's say they don't get a chance to ask that. What would they assume you believe by the way that you live your life in the way you engage this world around you? Would they see a faith and a trust that pursues Righteousness, would they see an awareness and a confession to sin? Like, are you quicker to point out the sins of others or look at the sins of your own? The first step is we have to assume a posture of repentance. It starts internal. And when we do that, when we find that continual freedom and refuge in God's grace and mercy, then we are better prepared to assume a posture with the world around us. So we start with repentance, and then as we engage the world around us, it moves towards compassion. Now, these next two qualities uh, that demonstrate this posture are, again, modeled for us by Christ. If you want to continue to flip, go to Matthew chapter 9, and we will see one of the first references that describes Jesus' posture towards the crowds. I love this. Okay, so Matthew chapter 9, we'll be in verses 35 through 38 for this discussion. Look at how Jesus responds to the people around him, right? He's going to carry the message, right? He's going to town to town and village to village. He's preaching the gospel. These are the words he's using, but notice the posture he assumes. Jesus went through all the towns and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them 
because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. We often look at this as a missional passage, but notice the posture with which he wants these workers to be sent out. He wants them to be sent out to preach this message, to do his work in a posture of compassion. That word means to have your heart go out to, to have pity, that your heart is stirred towards mercy, towards another person, right? And so, so here's the reality of this. Too often, we engage the world around us without that spirit of compassion, right? And, and we, this is, to me is a great indicator of whether or not we've actually taken that step to learn about other people. Have we asked the right question to understand why they believe what they believe, why they say what they say? Do we actually have compassion for them? Because here's what I think we will discover that this, that this text highlights is Jesus sees what's going on with the crowds. He sees their hearts. He understands what they're after. Listen to how he describes the crowds. They are harassed, helpless, and sheep without a shepherd. And I would be willing to bet that more often than not, when we stop and we actually listen and we learn about other people, we're gonna discover that the reason they may feel so passionately about something or argue so demonstrably about something is because of one of those things. Some people have been harassed. They've been oppressed. They've been hurt. They've been wounded. They've been inflicted. And it has shaped the way in which they see and engage the world. Do you see that? Do you see the wounds that they carry? Some of them, when they, they get so angry and hostile and they throw all these things out there in the world because they're crying out for help. They're overwhelmed with the situation. They're overwhelmed with the crisis at home. They're overwhelmed with something. And so it's turned into maybe a certain advocacy or passion or whatever. But what they're really saying is, I need help with this. Others are just misguided. Right, like if we believe Jesus' words are the words that are gonna give us truth and he's gonna teach us how to live and what to follow, then some people haven't heard his words. They are like sheep without a shepherd. Regardless of their situation or their circumstances, it should ignite compassion. Does it? Like, here's what I want you to do for a moment. I want you to think about someone in your life that irritates you. Like, maybe it's the family friends, maybe it's the crazy uncle, maybe it's somebody that you see on the news, maybe it's a particular type of news or media, maybe it's a news anchor, maybe it's a politician. I want you to think about uh, the issues that stir up such frustration, right? Gun control, abortion, gender identity, racism, all the things that ignite that fury within our culture. And I want, to th I want you to think about the people that oppose you and whatever your view is on those issues. Do you have compassion on them? Like when you think about those that just adamantly oppose you and see this world completely differently, is your heart stirred towards compassion for them? Or do you find yourself bristling and getting defensive, getting anger, getting hostile? Notice what Jesus did when he encountered the crowds. He wasn't annoyed, he wasn't frustrated, he wasn't angry, he was compassionate. Because he saw them for who they were, harassed, helpless, sheep without a shepherd. 
And this is a common practice for Jesus. If you were to continue through the Gospels, you don't have to turn there. I'm just going to highlight in Matthew 14. Jesus hears about uh, John the Baptist's death, and he's grieving. In his grief, he gets on a boat by himself to a solitary place. The crowds fear about it, and so they go to the, to the next shore that he's going to land at, and then wait for him. And so in the middle of his grief, he encounters the crowds. And does he say, hey, I just need time. I just need space. Does he get frustrated with them saying, hey, your hurt isn't as big as mine? Does he like neglect all those things? No, what does he do? He's stirred by compassion even out of his grief. Matthew 15, he's healed all day. They have brought the sick, the lame, the hurting over and over and over again. And he's healed them and he's healed them. Is he exhausted? Does he hit his max? Does he say, that's it, I'm done, I need a break? Does he do any of those things? No, he's mindful of them again, saying, how are these people going to get home without food? We need to feed them, not just heal them. Before their journey, he has compassion on them as he begins to feed the thousands. Matthew 20, two men sitting on the side of the road, and they're crying out, Son of David, have mercy on us. And the disciples and the crowds around them look at the men and say, be quiet. Does Jesus join in the crowds and try to silence these pleas for help? No, it says he had compassion on them. And he turned to them and said, what do you need? He said, give us our sight. And he restored their sight. We have to assume a posture of compassion. It means nothing if you respond to the world around you with anger, frustration, and hostility. Be compassionate people. That's who we're called to be. So we start with a repentant heart. And then as we move externally, we assume this posture of compassion. Here's the third that to me is, is arguably the most brilliant. Uh, in fact, I would say when you think about Jesus's life and ministry, uh, this is maybe the most revolutionary thing he did, right? Obviously, the most revolutionary thing he did was raised from the dead. Let's give him credit for that, right? Like nothing tops that one. But beyond that, when you think about his teaching, his posture, um, to me what is so remarkable is the way in which he called others and modeled a posture of servanthood. Let's take a look at it. Matthew chapter 20. Go ahead and flip there. Matthew chapter 20. This is a great uh, teaching on it. We, we know that Jesus leads by example He's healing people left and right. He's constantly serving those that were often considered to be untouchable or outcast from society. He's doing that in incredible amounts. You, you see him in John chapter 13, wash his disciples' feet. We see him constantly demonstrate this. In Matthew 20, he explains why it's so important. And he, and he offers a clear teaching on it. Uh, let's look at chapter 20, starting in verse 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's, Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want? He asked. And she said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. And Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. 
So Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercised authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must become your servant or must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is a remarkable story. Uh, And it starts with a mom doing what moms do, caring for their babies, right? I mean, here's this mother of Zebedee's sons, and she's like, all right, this Jesus guy is pretty awesome. He's got all this kind of power, this influence. I want my kids, I want my sons to have like a special seat at the table. And so she goes and she advocates for her kids. This is what moms do. And, And look, her external posture is right. She goes to Jesus, that's good. She kneels before him, that's good. She acknowledges his power, but her requests betray her. And not just her, but her sons that are standing with her. Right? What does she ask for? Let them sit at your right and your left. What we see here is one of the most age-old temptations to the human heart, the temptation for power. Right? Here's what they see. They see that Jesus has ultimate authority, but now how can they capitalize on that authority for their own benefit, their own gain, to elevate their own status, their own importance, their own power? That's what they want, which is why Jesus responds and says, you don't really know what you're asking. You don't understand how my kingdom works. And he asks the sons, right, do you really think you can drink from the cup that, I can, that I'm going to be drinking from? They say, well, we can. And he's like, well, you will. But again, it's not my place to, to really award this spot. That's for my Father in heaven. So he addresses it, but here's where it gets really interesting. The other 10 hear about it. The other 10 disciples, right? So here you got the 12. They hear about it, and their reaction to the Zebedee's sons coming and asking this question was that they were indignant. That word means um, they were incensed. They were irate. They were angry. They were not like, oh, man, those Zebedee boys, they're just doing the thing again. You know, the, they, weren't, they weren't like dismissive about this at all. It infuriated them. And so why was that? Because they saw it as a threat to their own potential status, didn't they? Why would they get the chance to have that question? Why are they getting the chance to ask that favor? And now we've got a great picture of what is happening in our society, right? That more often than not, what causes us to to veer away from truth or engage in a posture that is not constructive is because of a thirst and a quest for power. We become indignant with one another, irate with others that might threaten that power. And we begin to see the world through a lens of utility rather than compassion and service. So what I'm doing, what I mean by that is I'm looking for someone that can help me get what I want. So if you can help give me the rights that I want, the world that I want, the life that I want, the economy that I want, then I'll vote for you, advocate for you, associate with you, whatever it is. And if you come against these things that I want, if you threaten them, if you, if you challenge them, well, then I'm going to see that as a threat against my power, my potential status, and so we're going to go to war. We're going to argue. We're going to debate. Right? If I see that you're going to threaten my ability because of my skin color, if you're going to threaten me because of my orientation, or if you're going to threaten me by telling me who I can and cannot marry, if you're going to threaten me by telling me what kind of weapons I can or cannot own, if you're going to threaten me by all these different things, and I'm going to go against you, and I'm going to be irate against you as a result. That's our society. 
And what Jesus says is, let's come together. Let's talk about this. He calls them all together, and he says, now listen, y'all. Y'all know the Gentiles and how they take their authority and they lord it over one another. And isn't that what we do in our society? Once I get in power, let me, let me do everything I can to get my way, my rights, whatever that looks like. This is how the secular world functions. And Jesus says, this is how the Gentiles function. He calls them close and he says, not so with you. This is not how we are to function as believers. We are not thirsty for power. Why? Because those who want to be first must become a slave. We must be just like the Son of Man who didn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And when he teaches that and models that, remarkable things happen. Let me, let me cover some of these because I think this is so important. Okay, hang with me. Here's what happens. Think about his teachings uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. And he talks about, hey, you've heard it said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Right? And that resonates with us, doesn't it? Yeah, justice. You wrong me, I'm going to wrong you. There's going to be some sort of equitability. That, that's what the human heart kind of longs for. Jesus says, well, actually, no. If somebody strikes you on the cheek, turn to them the other also. They want your shirt, give them your coat. They ask you to march a mile, march two. And he, he begins to portray this posture of servanthood. Now listen, that is not a call towards weakness and indifference. What he knows is that even under Roman rule that was going to be quick to oppress, quick to strike, quick to take, quick to ask you to march, that your response is to serve. And in so doing, that posturehood eventually dismantles the very system of oppression that you're encountering. It's really remarkable. And you can see this in some very specific issues. I want to highlight a few of them for us this morning. Uh, let's think about slavery for a second, okay? Uh, because here's the reality. You can look through Scripture, and there's some really clear teachings on certain ethics and issues. And we're like, yeah, okay, don't murder. Sweet. Don't lie. Awesome. What else? Don't steal. Good. And it's very clear. And then there are sometimes these issues that are just painfully absent, right? And slavery's kind of one of them, isn't it? Like, it's one of the greatest abominations in human history. Wouldn't it be great if the Bible said, don't own slaves? But it isn't. There's no, like, 11th commandment. There's this article that was written by a Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary professor. His name is Thomas Kidd, and he talks about that. He's like, wouldn't it be great if there was an 11th commandment that just said, thou shalt not own slaves? And even though you can see different references in the Old and New Testament, like 1 Timothy 6.10, that'll say uh, a word against enslavers and slave owners and things like that, you still have this like weird kind of dynamic in the scriptures. And yet in that dynamic, we find something incredibly brilliant. Uh, you don't have to turn there, but I'm going to read to you Ephesians 6 that accentuates how servanthood upends this idea of oppression. In chapter 6, Paul's working through, in Ephesians, all the different relationships within the household. And then he gets to slaves and masters. Wouldn't it be great if Paul said, slaves, masters, stop doing that. Everybody be free. Slavery is terrible. But he doesn't, does he? Here's what he says. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear, with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord and not people. 
because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. His answer is, doesn't matter if you're slave or free. Serve as if you're serving Jesus. Now, you may sit there and go, well, gosh, that's just going to, like, uh, support and prop up an institution of slavery. But Paul continues, masters, treat your slaves in the same way. <laughs> Do not threaten them since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. So both of you serve one another because you know there is a master over both of you. And in that call to mutual servanthood, the tenets and the institution of slavery crumbles. Same thing happens with patriarchy, right? You could turn a page over to Ephesians 5 and you see this call. There's this age-old problem with patriarchy across human civilization, the way that men have mistreated women. And here you find Paul saying, wives, submit to your husbands. And you gotta sit there and women go, well, now wait a second, that's awful. You see all the abuses, how could you dare tell me to submit and to serve my husband? That's ancient, that's old, that's, that's a terrible way to think. But what does Paul continue to say? Serve them as if you were serving the Lord. And then he gets to husbands and saying, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And he creates a picture of mutual servanthood that makes any sort of abusive and power-hungry dynamic in a relationship crumble. How does he handle racism? Jews and Samaritans, right? He speaks to the Samaritan woman. He teaches the story of the good Samaritan. And what's the lesson of the story? How do you overcome racism? You serve one another. Think about greed, politics, tax collectors, and all of their uh, cheating and disingenuous ways. Does he say, all right, y'all, we got to vote them out of office. We got to find out some other candidate to prop up here. We need new legislation for our tax code here in the temple. Like, let's go and figure this out. Our whole society depends on it. He says, no. He says, give to Caesar what Caesar's. Sell everything you own. Servanthood radically changes all of it. Here, hang with me. I know we're running long. We got Mother's Day lunch. I'm cooking too. It's going to be a long afternoon. This is important. Here's why this is so critical. The gospel is designed to transcend culture and generation. Here's the reality. As long as humans carry this earth and societies come and go, so will all forms of exploitation and oppression. And so the gospel has to speak for those that are in power and those that aren't, for the white American male and the immigrant, for the poor person in Brazil and the aristocrat somewhere across the world. It has to speak to all people in all times. It has to speak to you when you're in power or when you're suffering through the Holocaust. And all these different cultures and all these different societies are gonna function in all these different ways, so it makes very little sense to say, hey, here's the way to just do it all. The perfect society's coming with his return. So while we wait, whether you are slave or free, serve. It doesn't matter your position. It doesn't matter your status serve. And when you do that, things change. 
What Jesus does with this posture is he doesn't go after the issue, he goes after the heart. And that's the posture we have to assume. So I'll close this with this, all right? If we have that posture of repentance, compassion, and servanthood, how drastically different would it shape how we engage the world around us? Like, let's, let's think about how that maybe rather than the time and energy and worry that we might devote to who we need to vote for for the sake of abortion, or a Supreme Court ruling that we're worried about, or a justice that might be appointed, and all the ways that we may speak about that and talk about that with family and friends, what if we actually found someone faced with that decision and we approached them with the spirit and a posture of repentance, compassion, and servanthood? What if rather than fretting about gender identity, and all the different things that might or may happen in our schools and books that may or may not be read. And again, legislation and rulings that may or may not happen. What if we actually found someone in our life, had a conversation with them, learned about them, and assumed a posture of repentance, compassion, and servanthood? Let's think about the Republicans that fire us up and the Democrats and their ways, and all these different issues, and what they say about what I can and can't own to defend my home, what I can and can't do to, that I need to keep out of schools because of all the violence. What if we actually stopped talking about all these issues and we approach those conversations, learning about one another with a posture of repentance, compassion, and servanthood? Here's my hunch. If we did it, people might actually want to hear what we have to say. It might just be like it was thousands of years ago when they saw a man walk the face of the earth and do things no one had ever seen. Not just because it was miraculous, but because even when he was tired, he had compassion. Because he taught the importance of repentance. Because even when he was wrongly accused and beaten and battered, he extended mercy and said, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. And people wanted to know why. Why is he so compassionate? Why is he such a servant? And when that curiosity is ignited, guess where it leads, church? It leads to an empty tomb. And when we can take people on that journey, the light of the gospel begins to break forth in this darkened world. And people begin to see good deeds and give praise to their Father in heaven because that posture is a blessing to the world around us. And by being such a blessing, it brings others into a praise of the God who loves. May that be our pursuit and our posture. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. We thank you for all that you are and all that you do for us. And pray that you would go before us today and help us move with this sort of posture of repentance, compassion, and servanthood. Let us do so with a spirit of love and devotion and truth. We thank you for the honor that it is to serve you in such a way. May we do so humbly, and may we do so in a spirit that brings others into a praise of your name. God, we thank you for the opportunity to worship you today. We thank you for your word that guides and teaches and instructs. Help us to cling to it, trust it, um, and embody it as we leave here today. We love you, Father, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.